what we're doing here is simply going through the New Testament in chronological order. And so we've been kind of doing all four Gospels at the same time. And we're now in that period between the resurrection of the Lord and His ascension and His ascending into heaven. Now is a period of 40 days. And we've taken our time and studied all of his appearances during those days and some of the teachings, the Great Commission passages, of which there are three, Matthew, John, and Luke, all have uh, Great Commission passages in them, as well as the Gospel of Mark, which we're going to look at tonight. So uh, where we're going to start tonight is John's closing statement in John 20. 1 verse 25 and we'll pray here in just in just a second John 21 and verse 25 we're right here at the end of the gospel of John let's pray father we thank you for the good news uh, of your son that you sent into our world to reveal yourself to us, that we would not worship dumb idols of our own darkened thinking, but that you graciously have shown us who you are, what you've done, and called us to be your children. And we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through the death of your Son and His resurrection. We thank You that that You will complete the work in us thoroughly, mind, body, soul. You will one day completely deliver us from the effects of sin upon us and You'll deliver us from sinning against You and others. We thank You for this great plan. Lord, as we study Your Gospel here tonight, from your servant John and um, help us cling to the hope that is in these words that describe your redemption, Lord. Help us be able to manifest that hope to others around us and um, that you would have mercy on them as you have had on us. Lord, Sandy is not with us tonight. Uh, We pray for Dana, her husband, and the heart surgery that's taking place tomorrow. Lord, we also pray that you would reveal yourself to Dana as, as we understand that he has not bowed a knee to you, called on your name. Lord, that you would, that you would have mercy on him. And we thank you for our dear sister Sandy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so coming to John's closing statement in chapter 21, 25. I'll I'll back up one verse. This, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. We had fun last week working through all those pronouns one by one as to how we are to understand that statement. I'm, I'm not going to review that. 
but he is the the author of this statement is taking credit for, to be the author of this gospel and what and he wrote these things and we know probably the author and his community of people and we know that his the author's testimony is true and we have a concluding statement and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And thus ends his gospel. So we arrive at this final statement and the in-the-background author suddenly appears in first-person singular language to tell us that in spite of the amazing record that he's written, it's only a small part of what actually took place. That's what he's saying, correct? He did many more things. And the other thing is kind of interesting here, he, I suppose, he finally speaks in the first person of himself. He never does that. Through the, all the rest of the gospel, he's like the narrator in the background. And he never speaks in the first person. And here at the very end, he, he comes and, I, me, he speaks in the first person as he makes this final statement. And uh, someone pointed that out to me. I didn't notice that on my own, but it's kind of striking when you think about it. He comes out in the first person, and to give us this statement <clears throat> that many other things Jesus did. So what he's telling us, of course, is that we only have, we have when we read our Gospels, with a little care, we realize that the authors are being highly selective. They have all this material, okay? They have all these miracles that Jesus worked, all of his teaching for three years, six or seven days a week, all of his interactions with his enemies, his interactions with his disciples. They've got at least three years of continuous ministry and interaction. So what do they do? They, they have to select down. They select the material down. So I'm, you know, I'm convinced that, that a lot of the discourses that we have from Jesus, they really are summaries, okay? They're really a summary of the message that Jesus gave. And that's what John is saying here. <clears throat> is there's many things which, uh, many other things that Jesus did, and they're not written, if they were written one by one, all the books in the world could not contain them. Now, <clears throat> however, those who heard John during his earthly days heard more than we have. Think about that. Okay. If you were a disciple of John, 
you would have had the privilege of hearing more than he wrote. Because, <laughs> you know, you could spend the evening with John and say, well, you know, tell me about the feeding of the 5,000 or tell me when, when the centurion came and talked to Jesus. Or, you know, so if you were in that first generation where you still had access to the apostles and the eyewitnesses, you would probably hear and know more than we do. Uh, And so it's interesting to think about that. This isn't in your notes, but you see, the church had to transition from oral, oral tradition. They had to transition to written, didn't they? And so... Initially, there are no Gospels written, okay? I mean, John, this Gospel was probably written like 80, 95, somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D. is when this Gospel, when John wrote his Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were probably written, you know, in the late 60s. Uh, some say some of those were written after the fall of uh, after 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destructed? I don't think so. I think all three of those were written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, not that much prior. So we have these decades in front of that. Jesus' resurrection is around 33, right? So 33, so we've got, we've got 30 to 40 years before the synoptics are written. And then we've got you know, maybe 50 years uh, before the Gospel of John is written. And during that period, uh, we're going to transition from oral to written. Okay? It's, it's just good if you understand that. Uh, <clears throat> so, I think the written would have happened sooner. This is just conjecture on my part. The written would have happened sooner if all those eyewitnesses were not available. <laughs> okay, if you've got John available to you and you've got all the first-hand witnesses available to you, you, there's not a lot of motivation to put it in writing. <laughs> and it's very interesting. There's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Papias who made some very early statements about the Synoptic Gospels. And one of his statements is, as he's researched everything, he's living in this transition period. And one of the things he says is he would prefer to have a witness as opposed to a written. Okay, but see, he's living right there. He would prefer to have an actual witness as opposed to one of the disciples who wrote the things down. So... Why am I getting off on all that? I just want you to have a feel for how our New, how our New Testaments came together. But praise God, um, uh, we have the apostolic word because it's gotten to it's written, and and John's gonna John's gonna say that that very thing here in in a moment. So, okay, all of that said. Uh, nevertheless, John has selected what is needful and sufficient to our faith. 
and to give us a fully adequate to give us a fully adequate foundation to believe in Jesus and in believing him have an eternal life. In this verse, verse 25, John is returning to what he said in verse 31 earlier. So let's back up to verse 31, not verse 31. Chapter 20 and verse 31. Chapter 20 and verse 31. Let's back up there. Okay. See, it's similar, isn't it? And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now we're back in chapter 20. So this statement is made similar twice. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now this is the key. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, what John has done out of this massive material, he's selected out of that what he understands to be necessary to lay a foundation for any reasonable person to believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And I find that very comforting because it's like, well, what if there's things that I don't know? Okay? What if there's, you know, what if there's essential things that I don't know? Well, the apostle of Jesus here says, I've given you... (laughs) I'm a witness of all of this, and I've written down for you what is the essential foundation for your faith. See, that's what he's saying. Right? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, and that he is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life uh, in, in his name. So, thank you, John. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, for calling John and preserving John's life. Um, So, now we had contrasted John with Peter, didn't we, a couple weeks ago on the the beach there at, at the Sea of Galilee when we were talking about Peter and John and John following... Uh, Jesus and Peter are walking and John's following behind. (laughs) So, uh, we were contrasting those two apostles. So, John's remaining instead of dying a martyr's death earlier, as did Peter, enabled John to produce this written witness to Jesus, the Son of God. Okay. Peter did not write a gospel, but Peter used Mark to write the you know the gospel of the gospel of Mark uh, <clears throat> was pretty clearly given to Mark by Mark working with Peter, but John lives much longer than Peter, and that gives John much more time to reflect and think things through, doesn't it? 
and it gives John uh, to be post-70 A.D. John is living after the destruction of Jerusalem. And John sees the gospel going amongst the Gentiles in a way that Peter never did. And so all I'm saying is this extended life of John, I think, has something to do with equipping him to write this gospel. And so I will stop there. Do you have any comments or or questions about these closing statements here? Uh, Jack, do you have a... (laughs) Do you have a question or a thought? The the thought would be... um, John is, uh, I can see this now, uh, beginning to see this now more. You mentioned John saying, I suppose, and um, that John saying that is the one who was um, who in John 7 states for even his own brothers, even his own brethren did not believe, believe, believe yeah. in him. And yeah. that John is also, as we know, at at the dinner, says to Peter, uh, ask him who, is, who it is that's going to be, betray him. Well, Peter that, asked John that. Peter asked John to do that. Right. And, and, and John, John did it. And also that John is the one who at the cross, when the Lord, you might say, provided yeah. social security for his mother. Yes. Uh, That's that, right. that John... Um, boy, I'm seeing there's a lot, there's a lot of... There's a lot of linkage there. Yeah. He had is. to have known many other things that took place in the Nazareth home through Mary, maybe even Joseph. We don't know when Joseph passed away. Yeah. But John was, well, he was gone by that time, yeah. by the time of the rest yeah. of the crucifixion. But, yeah. but anyway, I didn't want to ramble here. Okay. Okay, so, all right, where, if, we're going to move off of John tonight, and <clears throat> there's one thing we have yet to do as we go through these four Gospels, is we have to look at the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to go now and discuss uh, the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And <clears throat> I don't kind of know how to start. i got a bunch of notes written down there, but Let's start by, you know, let's start by just reading it. Pay attention as I, as I read. I'm going to start back at Mark 16, verse 1. We have, we have worked on some of these earlier parts of Mark. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome 
brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they, and they were alarmed. But, get up here. but he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they quickly went out and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at at the table And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up servants, and and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and when and when they went out and they went out and preached everywhere the lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs amen okay so there's the, there's the whole chapter now what we're what we're going to be discussing tonight is the the latter part of this chapter from verses 9 to 20 uh, there's a significant discussion as if that portion is really part of the Gospel of Mark. Okay. Is verses 9 through 20 really part of Mark's original Gospel? And if, all, if, if you have notes in all of your Bibles, if you have notes, probably every one of your Bibles 
right at that point, they give you a note. <laughs> they say that this passage may not be part of the actual gospel that, that uh, Mark wrote. And so that's why I, I've kept this for the last. I've told you we were going to do that. And so we're going to do that here this evening. So the discussion I'm going to provide you here tonight is by no means exhaustive on this. Uh, and it's just in, intended to acquaint you to this matter relating to the Gospel of Mark. And I'll tell you up front, I think Mark did not write in verses 9 through 20. Okay? Uh, I think the case is pretty strong that he didn't. You can make a case on either side. But it's good for us to know this about our New Testament. Plus, it's educational to grapple with a problem like this because it helps us grapple. How do we grapple with Scripture and textual criticism and all of these issues? It helps us learn how, how those kind of skills. So, that, so that's why we're going to do it. This is going to be a little technical. It, it might be a little difficult. Um, but <clears throat> let's just get into it. There's often, we talk about internal and external evidence when these subjects come up. Can anybody, can anybody tell me what we mean when we talk about internal and external evidence? Now, Alexis has a microphone back there, so she could tell us. Anybody know what we mean when we talk about internal and external evidence? Okay, well, let me, I'll, I'll explain it. Okay, external evidence means written records outside the Bible. That's external to the Bible, external evidence on which our Bible is based. Okay, so when we talk about manuscripts of the Bible and that we have 5,000 of them, that's external evidence. We've got all of these documents, and that would be considered external evidence. And from all of those documents, we figure out, here's the Gospel of John. Now, internal evidence is from the inside of the Bible, where we look at, say, oh, look at the grammar here. Look at, you know, look at uh, how the pronouns are changed. Or, you know, James doesn't write like Paul correct? <laughs> they write very differently. And we have, we're studying the text of the Bible itself. That's internal evidence. So in a discussion about a passage, whether it belongs in the Bible or not, we're going to always be talking about external and internal evidence. And you have arguments for and against by external evidence, and you've got arguments for and against by internal evidence. Okay, so that's kind of what we're going to do here tonight. So we're going to start regarding external evidence. Now, it helps understand that the New Testament is constructed from copies of 5,000 manuscripts dating from AD 125 at the earliest to about AD 1200. At the latest. 
These copies range from the size of scraps little larger than a postage stamp to complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay, so we've got 5,000 pieces of external evidence. We got 5,000 pieces <laughs> to build our New Testament out of. Get that. Just think about that for a while. You see, see what we're saying? We got 5,000 pieces of writing from which we construct what we believe to be the original documents of the authors. Okay? So that's how we get our New Testaments. Some of those pieces are just a, a fragment with just a couple words on them. Others are the entire New Testament. <laughs> Some are collections of the writings of Paul. Some are collections of the four Gospels and all kinds of things in between. <laughs> so we got 5,000 pieces to build our new, to build our, to reconstruct as accurately as we can our New Testament. So, understanding that, the oldest, the oldest manuscript evidence we have is like around 125 A.D. So, in other words, we don't have the original document that any of the New Testament authors wrote. There's a technical name for those. What are those called? We've used that word at times. You're right, Mark. Those are called the autographs. What is that word? Auto means self, right? Self. Graph means writing. Graphe is writing. Autograph, self-written, meaning by John wrote the autograph. Okay. We don't have those. Okay. Now we have manuscripts. So what we have are copies, and the oldest copies we have go back to like 125, 135 A.D. So those are pretty ancient <laughs> at 125, 135. They're awfully close to the autographs. So the autographs have been circulating, and the church has been copying them, and we happen to, we're blessed by being able to have those. Now, lo and behold, they don't all agree. <laughs> Okay, we got 5,000 pieces of the New Testament. And no, they don't all agree. So on the one hand, oh, there's so many aspects of this subject. I better stay focused. So they don't all agree. And guess what about the ending of Mark? There are manuscripts that don't have the ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, and there are manuscripts that do have the ending of Mark. Okay? Are you with me? So that's the situation, that's the situation we're in. So, uh, summarize here. Okay, let me get, jump into my notes here. Okay, the situation we are faced with is that some of the most significant manuscripts which contain the entirety of the New Testament do not contain Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. Codex Vaticanus 
and Codex Sinaiticus are the two biggies, and neither of those contain this ending. Okay, and those two texts contain, I think, almost almost the entirety of the New Testament is in both of those, and neither of those um, contain the ending in Mark. Now, it's not in your notes, but these two codexes, that just means books. Uh, They're in the form of a book. They're not in the form of a scroll, okay? Um, These are like four... Fourth century, I think. Fourth century, okay? So they're, by, they're not the oldest, okay? But they're the largest. So, so just keep that in mind. That's going to be, you know, there's going to be pro and con arguments about that because these two manuscripts are not the oldest manuscripts by any means. Now, so they don't contain... Mark 16, 9 through 20. However, many of the older but smaller manuscripts do contain Mark 16, 9 through 20. However, (laughs) this is just a long list of howevers. However, many of those older manuscripts have scribal notes indicating that the verses are spurious and not part of the original mark. Okay, Scribes who copy manuscripts at times have a tendency to write notes in the margin. So yes, those manuscripts are older, but some of those older manuscripts, the scribes at the time indicate that this passage is an addition to Mark. Okay? And it's not part of Mark. So... Now, you can spend a whole lot of time, this is on all the external evidence here. You can look at all those manuscripts and you can do, you know, and you can come to the conclusion on external evidence whether Mark, that passage, should be in there or not. Okay? So, I'm not going to do that. I'm not a textual critic with a lot of skill to be able to do that. Okay? Um, Now, that's external. Now, internal evidence is different. It's when we read it and look at it, does it look like Mark wrote this? <laughs> and I tend to think the internal evidence looks leans to the side it doesn't look like Mark wrote this. And, and, I, and I'm not listing all of the issues about that. I have five indicators here, internal evidence, that it doesn't look like Mark wrote this. The first is verse 9. Verse 9 has no connection to verse 8. And it seems to begin giving another account of the resurrection, which Mark had started in verse 1 and concluded in verse 8. Mark is coming to a conclusion here. He, he starts in verse 1 with his, with his resurrection account, and we read all the way through it. And he gets down here to verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him 
as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb and trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone who were afraid. Verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, it's a non sequitur. It's like he's starting to write another account. Is he actually starting to write another account, or did someone later add this to the manuscript? For somewhat what reasons we'll talk about. So that kind of sticks out like a like a sore thumb. Uh, <clears throat> he's launching into another account, and actually, what it is, it's a summary of Jesus's appearances in this second account at verse nine. I, I read through that. Uh, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. So they went. Uh, so she went and told them, and they wept, and they wouldn't believe. After that, he appeared to two of them on the road. We've seen all that in the other Gospels, haven't we? We've seen that. And the two on the road are the roads to Emmaus. And then, and then he appeared. Anyway, so it's like he's, he's doing two things. He's rehearsing the appearances, and he's pointing out, whoever the author is of 9 through 20, he's rehearsing the appearances, and he's pointing out their slowness to believe. The theme in 9 through 20 is this, all the people they should have believed, but they didn't. Okay. So verse 9 sticks out uh, kind of like a sore thumb, like we're starting over. Um, the other thing, Mary Magdalene is introduced three times in chapter 15, verse 40. Follow me on this one. Let's back up to Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Okay. There were also women looking afar, among whom was Mary Magdalene. Okay, now, you see, what, what is he doing? Well, he's, uh, there's, mo there's so many Marys, you have to identify them to keep them straight. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here, right? Mary Magdalene, okay, that identifies one Mary. And now what? Mary, the mother of James, the less, that identifies another Mary. So what he's doing here is trying to help us keep these Marys straight. It was a very, very common name. So, and then in, uh, uh, so it's Mary Magdalene. Then in verse 47, he again introduces us. He mentions Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the, brother, uh, Mary the mother of Joseph. Joseph, okay? So he just refers to Mary Magdalene in verse 47. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, uh, now when the Sabbath was passed, notice this, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, that's how he always introduces Mary Magdalene, okay? But when we, when we get down to chapter 16 and verse 9, we have an unusual introduction. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So that kind of sticks out like usually when you're introducing somebody in a conversation, you put that kind of stuff up front. <laughs> 
So he's already talked to, introduced us to Mary Magdalene three times. So now here in verse 9, he says, Mary Magdalene, oh, by the way, she's also the one whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. That has nothing to do with the context here. Okay? So that's another piece of internal evidence that maybe we have somebody else that wrote this, Mark didn't write this. Okay, so that's, that's internal evidence. You see what I'm saying now by our definitions, external, internal. So there's a third issue here, and that is Matthew 28, 8 through 9, and John 20, 1 through 2, and Luke 24, 10, indicate that Jesus first appeared to Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. He didn't first appear to Mary Magdalene. We went through that. I can refresh, refresh our memories a little bit. If we go to Matthew 28, 8 through 9, it is early Sunday morning, and they went into the tomb. But the angel answered the women, uh, Do not be afraid, for I know you that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is written, as he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. So the angel invites them into the tomb. And... Um, so they ran, uh, what's the verse reference? 28.8, yeah. So they ran out quickly from the tomb with great joy and ran to bring word to the disciples. And as they ran to tell the disciples, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Now, why do we know that Mary Magdalene is not part of that group? We know that because of John. Because of the Gospel of John, we know that Mary never went into the tomb and Mary began running back to tell Peter and John that someone stole the body. So Mary Magdalene is no longer with this group of women early in the morning and we, we learn that from John... Um, where is it? It's John... 20 verses 1 through 2, right here. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said, They have taken away the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's already back in the city. <laughs> Not seeing Jesus, the other ladies that go early, the angel says, come and see, and they're going back to the city, and they run into Jesus on the way back to the city. So there's a conflict between that addition and Mark as to who Jesus appeared to first. It's not Mary Magdalene. Okay. So... Number four, internal evidence perhaps against Mark writing this, is that 
much of the content, I'm on page 257 now, much of the content of verses 9 through 20 appears to have come from the other Gospels, especially Luke. You notice that as we, as we read through this. <laughs> um, a lot of this content in here, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And that's later, later in the day, Mary Magdalene, when Mary Magdalene does see the Lord later in the day, and all of those women, including Mary, begin telling, telling the disciples, and the disciples don't believe any of them, including Mary Magdalene, because Mary Magdalene saw the Lord, she went back to the tomb, and there she saw the Lord, okay? That's after the other ladies had left. And we drew a diagram. We've been through all of this. So, um, so what, we're, what we're having here is a whole lot of material that's actually coming from Matthew and Luke in this edition. Uh, later he appeared to the leaven um, as he sat at table and he talks about the road, the road to Emmaus in here. I'm not going to go through all, all those details. But if you look at it closely, it's like there's a lot of material here that actually looks like it's coming out of Matthew and Luke. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, was, what might be wrong with that is that that appears to be the opposite direction from what most believe, that is, that Matthew and Luke are dependent on Mark. And what we normally see when we read the three synoptics is Matthew and Luke are drawing, copying from Mark. <laughs> and this is the opposite direction. Uh, I can tell uh, <laughs> Marianne already figured out where I was going as soon as I said that. It's the dependency is in the wrong direction. Matthew and Luke are dependent on Mark not vice versa. And I think the case for that's pretty strong. Um, so that's another piece of internal evidence. Like we, ha we have someone, this is, not, this is not Mark. Another thing is number five, and that is linguistic studies. And I can't, I'm not going to point, I can't point all that out in detail here, but what, Linguistic studies do is they take, they look at the speech of someone, how they, the, the word order that people use and all of that. They look at all that and surprisingly our patterns of speech are pretty unique <laughs> for all of us. In other words, these linguists can tell you what part of the country, for instance, you were born in and all these kind of things. And, of course, those kind of studies are done on the Gospels. And the linguists will tell us these verses don't sound linguistically like the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Okay? And they count, count up all kind of stuff. And, and it's like, it seems like this is, is not the same author from a linguistic analysis point of view. 
Now, one thing that's kind of in that category is what is said in Mark down here in this little phrase. I would never have thought of it, and I researched it myself once it was pointed out. How the author here refers to Jesus, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Well, what has been pointed out is, is that Mark never refers to Jesus as the Lord. He never does that. And, I, you know, I thought about that, and I got out and thanked God for computers. You can do this stuff pretty fast. And I did the search on the phrase, the Lord, not only in Mark and in Matthew, and in their narrative, when they're writing the narrative and referring to Jesus, it's always Jesus. Now, the phrase, the Lord, appears when Jesus quotes somebody or but when they're in their narrative, when they're writing about Jesus, they never say the Lord. Mark never does. So that's just one of those things that that's, Mark doesn't write that way. And uh, so that's internal evidence. Let's go on a little further. This is kind of like a Sherlock Holmes, you know. This is, a, this is like a detective. <laughs> now, so, let's assume, let's, let's, let's assume then the passage is an addition, okay? So, if the passage is an addition, what was the motivation for adding it? Okay? Well, likely that Mark's actual ending seemed to be a lack in his gospel. Because if his gospel ends at verse 8, he does not have any account of an appearance of Jesus. (laughs) If it ends at verse 8. Right? All he has is an account of the empty tomb. And that the angel told the ladies, uh, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Okay? There you will see him. So, Mark has no account of anyone seeing the resurrected Jesus. And that might appear to uh, uh, scribes down the road, it might very well appear that Mark's gospel is lacking. You know, how can the gospel end with an account of an empty tomb without an actual appearance of Jesus. An empty tomb by itself doesn't prove Jesus' resurrection, does it? No, it doesn't. 
Perhaps that was the motivation for the addition. You could, you could see someone saying, well, I've got to fix this. I've got to fix the Gospel of Mark <laughs> because there's got to be a resurrection appearance in the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, people point out, even the apocryphal Gospels have resurrection appearances. <laughs> if, if that's not in here, this is the only Gospel, even among the canonical Gospel and the apocryphal Gospel, it's the only one that doesn't have a resurrection appearance. So you can see how some might be motivated. Well, we're going to fix the Gospel of Mark and we're going to plug in a resurrection appearance. Uh, get the microphone from Jack there, Richard. He's right, right there. Yeah, I've heard this before and it's, it's reasonable and, and, and practical to think that, uh, of course, the, the apostles who, who either uh, wrote or dictated, you know, their accounts yeah. in order in different places, though. They, they were not in one place when they wrote. Oh, yeah, that's very possible. Okay, so if yeah. Mark, as, as you say, you know, is reputed to be the first one, it would have circulated in writing yeah. to where Matthew and Luke were. Yeah. And someone among them in the next generation or whatever might right. collate, you know, Absolutely. some of it yeah. together and so right. forth. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, that's very, yeah, that's very possible. Um, so we can, we can think of some reasons, maybe. Uh, some people thought we need to repair Mark or add, add something from Mark, and we're going to get the information out of Matthew and Luke because that's where it looks like it, it came from. Now, let's go a little further. There's just interesting historical things here to think about. So, um, however, from reading the edition, it seems that the major theme of the edition is the hardness and the slowness of the disciples to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I have to say this. If I were defending this edition... I would point out that that is a theme in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is very just blunt in multiple places about the slowness of the apostles to believe. And so if you were going to defend this, you go, well, yeah, that, that, that does appear, that emphasis does appear in other, other places in Mark. So Now, it gets... More exciting, I was going to say it gets worse, but I, no, it gets more exciting. There's also a valid discussion if the real ending is at verse 7. And the addition begins with verse 8. If Mark did intend to end at verse 7, why would he do that? Okay, look, look at this between verse 7 and 8. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. As he said to you, boom. That, that kind of sounds like an ending statement, doesn't it? It, it really does. Okay. We don't really need verse 8. Mark is not, Mark is terse. 
you know that. You read the Gospel of Mark, he's very terse. And, and that, that makes for a good ending. Go to Jerusalem, go, go to Galilee. There is an affirmed statement. The angel is telling, telling this. This is the message from the angel. There you will see him, says the angel, as he said to you. So, so they went out quickly and they fled the tomb. And So some believe that the gospel really ended at verse 7. Now, if Mark did intend to end at verse 7, why would he do that? That's a hard question. Now, there are lots of literary theories which likely don't apply to ancient literature. Okay, like, okay, he left the story open, and now you go find out for yourself. Well, ancient writings like this, from what I've read, they don't do that. They don't have that literary device. And so, why would he end there? Now, there's a possibility that the autograph of an early copy lost its final page of the codex. It, you know, that theory should be thought about. It kind of looks like that. It's like we have a book <laughs> and we're missing the last page, which, what are the pages that, the first pages and the last pages are those that you lose first. We have manuscripts like that. We have Greek manuscripts where we don't have the beginning part and we don't have the end and we got the middle. So there's a possibility there, maybe maybe the autograph or an early or an early version of mark actually lost the page and no other ancestor texts survived okay. the loss of a page theory would mean that mark did have a fuller ending now what might what might it look like if mark had a fuller ending well, likely, it would look like Matthew in view of the fact that Matthew seems to be following Mark. Now, you see what I'm saying? So, in verses 1 through 7, Matthew explicitly quotes some of these from Mark in these earlier verses, especially this here. This here, this is almost a verbatim quote in Matthew. And what we've often understood is Matthew is borrowing from Mark. And if we lost from verse 7 down, guess where it might be? It's in Matthew. Matthew's ending could very well be what has been lost from this Mark manuscript. Because Matthew appears to be following Mark. Okay? I wasn't smart enough to figure that out, but <laughs> it's great that the church has a lot of teachers and some that spend time on this stuff all their life. <laughs> but it's possible if we go with the theory that we lost the last page, 
Maybe we can reconstruct it by realizing Matthew's actually following Mark, and Matthew from that point on may very well be what was in Mark, and Matthew originally copied Mark. <laughs> so I told you this is detective work. Right. Something else is a possibility if why there's no ending. Um, there's also another possibility Mark didn't manage to complete his gospel. If he wrote in Rome during the mid-60s, he could have been martyred under the Neronian persecution. And we're pretty sure Peter and Mark were in Rome, at least in the early 60s when Mark wrote this gospel. So it's possible that he didn't complete it. Or Mark intended to write a volume two like Luke, right? Luke wrote volume two, which is Acts. Maybe Mark intended to write a volume two, but he didn't live long enough for whatever reason to write it. You know, Acts ends like that too. The book of Acts ends like, what happened to Paul? It just ends. It just abruptly ends. And so we don't know what happened to Luke either. <laughs> and so if you, if you don't add 9 through 20, Mark kind of ends like Luke ends. So... Um, now, all of this said, oh man, we're already 10 after, but none of you have little kids at home. <laughs> Those are the people I get in trouble with when I go over. <laughs> I'm, exa I'm exaggerating. I need to be conscious about the time. But now, all of that said, and you know, we can do this next week. Even if this is an addition, 9 through 20, if, if it's not authentically marked, it does reflect some early and foundational beliefs of the church, and it's useful. So let me say that much. So let's say it wasn't Mark. It was somebody in that first century that did this. It, it, it's, a, it's a window into that first century if this was actually written that early, or, or maybe early second century. It's a window into the church's thinking of whoever put this together. And in that sense, there's some, there's val I think there's, there's, valuable, there's valuable stuff in here. Uh, it's, we would say it's not inspired, okay, if we conclude it's not part of Mark. We wouldn't make it equal with Scripture. But that doesn't mean that it's not uh, valuable in, 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 a, in a lesser sense. Okay. And so, by the way, the textual variance, this is called a textual variant. You hear me use that expression. This is the biggest one in the New Testament. And where's the other big one? There's two, big by big, I mean quite a few verses. Where's the other significant, sizable textual variant? Anybody? Yeah, yes, Sarah, the... the in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, the first 12 verses, the woman caught in adultery by the Pharisees, and they bring the woman, uh, they bring the woman to, uh, 
Jesus. And we kind of did the same thing back then. We looked at external and internal evidence. And there again, the internal evidence is kind of against it being authentic. But when you say that, <clears throat> that doesn't mean, number one, that it didn't happen. Because it could be one of those many things that Jesus did that were not written in this book. Correct? The woman caught in adultery and that interaction with Jesus could very well have happened. Okay, it's very in character for the Pharisees, <laughs> that interaction. And so it could very well have been part of oral tradition and somebody decided to insert it. Uh, and if it was oral tradition and it did happen, then it's part of John's many other things Jesus did that aren't written in this book. So, But these are the two, uh, the biggest textual variants in our New Testament. Okay, any questions or comments? Anybody? So we're gonna we're we're going to be doing this historical stuff one more time, Lord willing, next week, and we'll look at this ending from from a content point of view. We'll discuss this ending some more, and then we've got to look at the ascension. We'll do the ascension and discuss this ending and a few verses in Acts where Luke describes the 40 days. And then we'll go to a switch and talk about theological issues for the latter parts of the gospel that we want to hit on before we leave the gospels. So let's pray. Oh, our Father, uh, how we thank you for the records of your work. And uh, we thank you that your scriptures were copied, that we have 5,000 pieces of the New Testament or entire entire New Testaments. And we just marvel at the spread of your word and your gospel in those early centuries, uh, evidenced by this massive volume of um, textual data that we have and how the people loved your word. And we thank you, Lord, for preserving it Lord, we know that you intend that that those who followed you, even to the end of the age, that those who come after you, even to the end of the age, Lord, we know it was your intent that we would believe in you through the word of these men whom you have chosen. And we thank you for preserving that word uh, through these men that you chose. And we thank you for your statement that blessed are those who believe uh, having not not seen and that you prayed for us, Lord, in that night in John 17. You prayed for those who would believe in you through their word. And Lord, that's us. So we thank you. We pray in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.